Please stand. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. We'll read verse 16 across the chapter division to chapter 3, verse 4. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory." Draw your attention to that phrase Paul uses in verse 23, promoting self-made religion. Let's keep that phrase in mind as we turn to our sermon text, Judges 17. Judges 17, there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son, to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man, Micah, had a shrine. And he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, 
I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest. And was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as priest. You may be seated. If you've gotten to know my family a little bit, there's nobody new here. Um, You guys all know that uh, we like to do a lot of things, especially Annie. She's more skilled at this than I am, like to do many things uh, the homemade way. Um, It's a lot of work, obviously, uh, but in our experience, it's generally worth it for things to be fresh, you know, to look at what's on the table and to know where it came from, what's in it, um, and just to be able to know, you know, we made that. Usually, she made that, um, which we're all very thankful for. Um, But, of course, we're we're also quick to say that we're not uh, purists about this, um, that we recognize our limits, that doing things the homemade way is not always the best way uh, to use our, our finite time and energy. And uh, Annie once ran across a book uh, called Make the Bread, Buy the Butter, What You Should and Shouldn't Cook from Scratch to Save Time and Money. And the point there is that there are some things uh, that are way better if you make them at home uh, than if you buy them at the store. But not everything. Not everything. Some things really aren't all that much better, if better at all, homemade. Sometimes they're not better at all if you make them at home. And nowhere is that more obvious, I think, I see where this is going, than in Judges 17. Judges 17, because we're going to look at three homemade things tonight that Micah and his mother had no business, no business at all trying to make it home. Number one is a homemade God, verses 1 to 3. Number two is a homemade temple, verses 4 to 6. And number three, a homemade priest, verses 7 to 13. Okay, so first, a homemade God. So verse 1, in this uh, very, very artistic, very literary kind of way, the historian starts um, kind of in the middle of the story here. Very dramatic. Obviously, something important has already happened. He doesn't tell the story from the beginning. He tells the story from the middle. Micah's mother already has had this uh, large sum of money go missing. It's been stolen from her. Now, this is easy to miss. But I want you to look just, just about a page earlier at chapter 16, verse 5. And the lords of the Philistines came up to Delilah and said to her, Seduce him, seduce Samson, and see where his great strength lies, but by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will each give you how much silver? 1,100 pieces of silver. It's the exact same number. Now, there's one commentator I read that goes so far as to suppose, what if the mother of Micah actually is Delilah? Um, uh, he thinks, or she was a she, thinks that uh, the historian intends for us to infer that 
from this match in the numbers. I'm not sure that we can go that far. That's reading pretty far into the, the bare details here. But I think what we can say for sure is that the historian is making a deliberate connection with Delilah, between Delilah and this woman. This is a Delilah-like woman in this sense. Delilah seduced Samson, literally. This woman is going to be part of the great seduction of Israel into idolatry. We go on, and immediately you find out that, very sadly, the thief who stole from this woman turns out to have been her own son. Micah said to his mother, those 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoken in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And I wonder if we're supposed to think at this point of um, that man Achan in Joshua Chapter 7, Achan, who took the forbidden spoils from Jericho and brought God's judgment on the entire community. Why is it, then, you might wonder, that in verse 2, when Micah gives the money back, his mother responds, very curiously, by blessing him. Blessed be my son by the Lord. Now, Micah has not acted in a way that should bring on him blessing from God. There is a dissonance here. There is a clash. These sounds don't fit together. Someone steals from his mother, and as a consequence, he is blessed. That doesn't make sense. We might, um, at this point, we could start keeping a tally of all of the uh, Ten Commandments that are being broken in this chapter. It's a lot of them. So far, we've got uh, the Eighth Commandment, obviously, you shall not steal. We've got the Fifth Commandment, he's dishonored his mother. Um, And then arguably, I think you could say maybe the Third Commandment is in play here too, um, as Micah's mother, you might say, is taking the Lord's name in vain as she blesses uh, in that name the son whose sinful choice she really seems to be kind of enabling and and minimizing. Uh, Parents, we need to speak the truth with our children. Um, there are no other parents of young children here, so maybe I'm preaching to the choir. I'm going to say it anyway, even if I'm saying this, applying this to myself, because sometimes, um, sometimes it feels like love to excuse and downplay the faults of children, their sins. You know, thinking, who am I to correct this child when I have so many faults of my own, or something like that? Or what if they don't like what I have to say, and we we can sometimes crave our own children's approval? and enable and nurture um, their worst inclinations instead of disciplining and training them towards maturity, towards right choices. Why? Because we don't want to make them unhappy with us. Uh, We want too much for them just to like us. But that's not love. It's not gentleness. It's neglect. It's it's abdicating our God-given duty, the hard duty sometimes, to give that discipline and correction that, like Hebrew says, in the short run it's unpleasant, but later... It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness by those who've been trained by it, Hebrews 12, 11. Now, unfortunately, Micah's mother here models the opposite way of doing things and also the opposite outcome by excusing and enabling and blessing this, this son after this grievous sin. So it gets worse, obviously, when Micah gives this money back to his mom Um, She's so relieved and happy about it that she is suddenly filled 
with this very earnest, uh, very um, strong feeling of piety, a sense of piety, and she feels like she wants to do something for God with this money that's just been restored to her. And so she says, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand. I think, wow, this is really great. What a godly woman. How generous, how sacrificial, how super spiritual of her to want to dedicate this money to God. Except um, that's not the end of the sentence, right? I dedicate the silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Make an idol. So you could um, get out your Ten Commandments bingo card again. Um, To be fair, to be fair, she doesn't say I dedicate the silver to Baal or I dedicate the silver to Asherah or to Dagon, the Philistine god. No, her, her intent here is to contribute to the worship of the Lord. You see the capital letters there. It's important. This is the, the covenant name of the one true God that she's using. She's using that name. But she wants to honor him how? By making an image. In Israel's history, Israel's idolatry takes different forms at different times. Um, sometimes they were outright worshiping false gods, like Baal or Asherah, and that was bad enough. Um, other times... They were worshiping the Lord by name, but they did that using the forms, the rituals, the practices that the Canaanites used to worship their gods. They borrowed from Canaanite religion the practices for how to worship the one true God. So thinking about this in terms of the Ten Commandments, the first commandment, of course, teaches us whom to worship. And you might think at first, well, she's got that right. At least it's the Lord. The second commandment teaches us how to worship him. Only according to his word. Only as he's commanded us in his word. That's the point of the second commandment. But here's the interesting thing. Those first two commandments are are closely linked. They're, They're kind of like dominoes because when you break one, you really end up breaking the other one too. And here's why. Once this woman decides to make an image for worshiping the Lord, she has shown that she is substituting her own idea of what God is like for the truth about what God is really like, how God's revealed himself and his word. And so she's calling her God by the true God's name. But you see, the true God, the Lord, is not a God you can make an image of. And so by the act of making an idol, it's kind of like a bait and switch. The God you end up getting by participating in this kind of worship isn't really the true God at all. It's a false caricature. It's a substitute for the real thing. So if you're, if you're keeping score, you can go ahead and mark off both of those first two commandments uh, on your card after all. See, what Micah and his mom end up with here is not an image of the true God. What they end up with is a God of their own making. It is a homemade God. It doesn't stop there, of course. Once they've got the statue, they need to um, accessorize. And so Micah ends up creating not just a homemade God, but an entire homemade temple for that God. And the man Micah had a shrine. He made an ephod and household gods, teraphim, uh, they're called in Hebrew, these little statues to 
to kind of go along, accompany the bigger statue. And he ordained one of his sons who became his priest. Another evidence that Micah is making things up as he goes along here. Even Micah knows, as we'll see later, um, he, he at least knows enough about God's law to know that only Levites are supposed to be priests. He's not a Levite. His son is not a Levite. But Micah's not going to let those little details stop him because, of course, after all, he doesn't have a Levite on hand. And um, after all, he's, he's doing all this to set up a place to worship the Lord. The goal is to worship the Lord, and so surely the Lord won't object to this. We've got to work with what we have, right? He's, he's very sincere about this. He's very earnest. What could be wrong when that goal sounds so right? But then suddenly, there finally comes breaking into the story, the um, evaluation of all of this by the narrator, the authoritative interpretation, signaling how God views all of this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, that uh, very sad statement is going to become kind of a refrain, a kind of bell tolling repeatedly between here and and the end of the book, at least parts of it. Chapter 18, verse 1, chapter 19, verse 1, both say, in those days there was no king in Israel. And then the very last verse of the book, very last verse, chapter 21, verse 25, You get the whole thing again. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. To remember, the book of Judges, think about the whole thing. The whole thing has been largely, as one writer reminds us at this point, it's been largely the history of one failed leader after another. Over and over, leaving us longing for a better leader, a true leader, who will consistently and faithfully influence Israel uh, to follow the Lord the way they're supposed to. But those leaders keep coming up short one after the other. Israel needs a godly leader to help them submit to the ultimate kingship of God. But the actual events keep underlining uh, the great tragedy of Israel not having such a leader, not having such a king. If there had been a godly king ruling Israel at this point, think about it. It's not just the idolatry. It's a step before that. Don't you think there might have been a different outcome from the theft that Micah committed against his mom from the very beginning of the story? If there had been a true king, then that theft would have been dealt with perhaps in a different way. And, but in, and, and so instead of this thief being elevated to the status of a religious leader... Um, you would have had the king executing true justice in the land. It's bad enough when you hear stories of church leaders, for example, you know, getting arrested for mishandling the church's money. Well, here you have if, um, a guy who's already guilty of mishandling his uh, his this this these funds, and mom and his and, and his mother says, "Okay, great. Let's now make you a religious leader." Somehow, as though that qualifies him for this position, it's 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 all inside out and backwards. If there had been a king in Israel, a true king, a good king, a godly king, something Ralph Davis really hammers home. If there had been a godly king in Israel, 
then that situation, just as much as the idolatry that comes later, could have been prevented by that king implementing true justice, implementing in Israel's public life the law of God, like a king is supposed to do. But in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's what's being illustrated by the story of Micah. Well, just when you think it can't get any worse, it gets worse. So far we have a homemade God, a homemade temple. Now we're about to get a homemade priest. Actually, I guess you already have a homemade priest in Micah's son. Uh, but now Micah's looking to upgrade. Um, he know, Again, he knows enough about God's law to, to remember that priests really are supposed to be Levites. And suddenly this Levite falls right into his lap. Great, here's a Levite. I can make my temple even better. Now, the fact that this Levite is sort of roving around the land of Israel, kind of looking for a way to make a living, um, this is yet another commentary, another illustration of just how bad things have gotten in Israel. Levites, under the law of Moses, were supposed to have work to do especially related to the temple, or sorry, the tabernacle, uh, the, worship, the worship and the care of the tabernacle. And they were supposed to have a livelihood to support them in that work. But this Levite has neither. He's been neglected. He's unemployed, an unemployed Levite. And why is that? And no doubt there would be many others like him. The reason is that there is a failure of leadership. It's that same reason. There is no king in Israel. There's no king to see to it that nationwide the Levites are organized and serving in their holy duties according to the law and being provided for. And interestingly, this is something, especially in 1 Chronicles, um, that uh, David and Solomon are going to be known for, that they are going to organize and provide for the Levites so that they can care for the new temple that Solomon is going to build and so that they can lead the people in the worship of God. But now there is no David, there is no Solomon, there is no king in Israel. Before David, that organization of Levites apparently was not going on. And the experience of this Levite young man is a great illustration of the bigger principle that, as you've heard before, nature abhors a vacuum. When God's people are neglecting the true worship of God and the law of God, when they're failing to, failing to follow through on what God has commanded us to do uh, with regard to worshiping him, well, things aren't going to stay just neutral. There's no neutral gear in the spiritual life of an individual, a church, or a nation. There's some other version of worship and spiritual practice that's going to make its way in to that vacuum. Because we are worshipers by nature. Individually, as churches, and as communities, we are worshipers by nature. And that vacuum is going to be filled, if not by true religion, then by false religion. So this poor Levite who has no home, all of a sudden has his fortune made. He gets a a job offer from Micah. Micah says, I'll take care of everything. You are going to be set. I'm going to give you a nice salary. Uh, it's going to be all expenses paid. All you have to do is come live with me and uh, be my priest at this homemade shrine that my mom has 
Mom and I have set up in our house. We've got the silver, take care of you. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. Micah ordains. Now, who gave Micah the right to ordain anybody? Micah can't ordain someone. Apparently, he thinks he can. But how is he qualified to do this? He does it because, again, there's no one to stop him from doing it. There was no king in Israel. And in the end, he has the audacity to claim, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. And again, we're not to take that at face value. This is just thick, just dripping with, almost I could almost say sarcasm from the narrator, the way he just leaves Micah's comment out there and then leaves the impact for us to, to realize just how wrong that sounds. What could be further from the truth? This is, it claim is transparently absurd. And it just goes to show how self-deceived Micah is, how dull his conscience has become, and, and how in his ignorance he has come to love his self-made religion and he's become unable to distinguish it from the true worship of God. It's tragic. It's even more tragic because what's true of Micah is by extension true of all Israel. That's the point here. If This is what Israel's spiritual state was like going into the time of David. This is the disastrous fruit of the serial leadership failure of the judges. It's not just an indictment of Israel on the threshold of the kingship of David. It is a warning for God's people in all times of every generation of how easy it is to convince ourselves that because our spiritual practices are sincere, because they feel spiritual, because they feel authentic, because we like them and they suit us, that therefore they must be acceptable to God. Homemade religion. What Paul calls in Colossians, self-made religion. is the constant temptation, generation after generation, of every period in the life of God's people. It's what Jesus confronted in the Pharisees during his ministry when he said, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. It's exactly what the Reformation was seeking to repair after the medieval church had piled up these heaps and heaps of man-made traditions, homemade traditions, on top of the pure, simple, biblical worship of God until it was all but smothered and the true core of worship was almost invisible, almost lost. And it's what the church continues to struggle with in the present day including in evangelical Protestant churches. This is the thing. This is the thing about homemade religion, about self-made, man-made religion, whatever you want to call it. It's that it does not feel like false religion. This is what we have to understand. It feels right. It feels good. It deceives us. And it feels right because it suits our preferences. It's it's bespoke It's tailor-made for our tastes, for our desires, and it very conveniently ignores our faults. 
doesn't feel like idolatry. In fact, it can feel very spiritual. And it can give us a feeling of piety, a feeling even of nearness to God. That's how we describe it to ourselves. I feel so close to God when I do. This is precisely why we need to be seeking to commit ourselves and recommit ourselves time after time to a simple and insistently biblical approach to worship and church life and Christian living where we only bring in to the worship of the church what we can point to in Scripture and say, Thus saith the Lord. This is not our idea. This is God's idea. There are a lot of things that we like homemade, but the worship of God is not one of them. Listen, we cannot measure the acceptableness of our worship by the way it feels, by whether we like it or not, by whether we enjoy it or not, even by whether or not it feels reverent. Because many unbiblical practices people adopt in the church because they say it helps me feel closer to God. But where did God ever tell us? Where did God ever tell us that that was a way for us to get closer to him? That's what we have to ask ourselves when we're confronted with a practice. Think, is this right? Is this biblical? Is this pleasing to the Lord? Where did God ever tell us that this was his way for me to get close to him? See, Micah and his mother felt closer to God when they made this idol. In fact, that is precisely why they made it. That was the reason for the whole system of Canaanite idolatry in the ancient Near East. It's because by making this image, I feel closer to this God because now I can touch and see and and bow down to this, brought this God closer to me. That's precisely what the Lord keeps condemning because it distorts the truth about what God is really like. Um, Another angle to this, we also can't measure the value of a thing based on how useful it is for reaching the lost. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Fair warning. Um, and I recognize there may be some that wouldn't agree with me on what I'm about to say. And I would invite you to talk with me about this because to some people this would be a little alarming what I'm about to say. But I want to argue that this is the reason why Christians should not get caught up in uh, some of the trends that are popular even right now in our current cultural moment um, um, uh, such as, um, you know, many of you have heard of the, the miniseries The Chosen, and many people have um, thought this is a really effective tool both for me to get closer to God individually and also for us to reach out to the lost. And I, I don't mean to just pick on this one. I am picking on it, but I don't mean just to pick on this one um, aspect. I want to use that as an example because there are many other things like this in um, church and church culture now and at other times. Let me explain why I'm bringing up this example. People will say things like, well, this helps me to understand Jesus in a deeper way. This is is so relatable to me. that It helps me see Jesus as more relatable. It helps me to visualize, to imagine the gospel story. Look how it can help us to tell other people about Jesus in a new and more effective way. And understand, those are very powerful arguments. But do you see... If you zoom out again, do you see how every one, every one of those arguments could apply point for point to Micah's idol? It makes God more relatable. 
helps me visualize to imagine the gospel story. It helps us to tell other people about the Lord in a way that they can connect with because of their cultural background. See, when we start to reimagine the gospel stories and we start to put new words in Jesus' mouth that he might have said, and that's not to mention the idea of depicting him visually in the first place, which the second commandment forbids, what we're risking, um, in fact, I'd say what we're doing is we are, we are end up really remaking Jesus in our image instead of seeking ourselves to be remade in his image, which is the goal of the Christian life. And so the last thing the church needs and the last thing that the lost need is a homemade Jesus. See, the, the true God has given us a true image of himself. The true God has given us a true image of himself, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is pictured for us in the living word of God. Christ, who is our true priest. So much the, just the opposite of this homemade priest that Micah ordains for himself. Christ is our true priest. The priest who offered himself as the sacrifice for our sins. The priest who presents that sacrifice himself before God on our behalf. Whose priesthood actually means something, can actually accomplish something for us because of who he is and what he's done. Christ is that priest who saves us even, thanks be to God, even from our idolatry even from all of our worship failures, of which we have many starting right here in this pulpit. Christ who forgives us when we get worship wrong. Christ who welcomes us back and who teaches us so gently and so persistently how to worship him according to his word instead. Because that's what he wants from us. Why? Because... This is the remarkable thing as we find our place in this story. Because he is making of us, by his spirit, a true temple. A holy place for him to dwell in on his terms, in his way, according to his word. Because that is what is really good for us. That vision, that God-given vision in the scriptures for worship. That's what we should be devoting ourselves to as individuals and as families and as a church. We must always resist the temptation to substitute any form of homemade religion in its place. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for what we've read. We thank you for this history of Micah just uh, the beginning of a whole series of episodes that will just become darker and darker and more and more, a more and more distorted picture of what your people are supposed to be like. Um, Our God, even for all of the failures of your people, we're so thankful for the way this highlights all the more your covenant faithfulness, your grace, your almighty power not to be foiled by our failures, but instead to be able to bring such great good out of them 
to forgive us, to restore us. Lord, we pray that you would do this again and again as we continue to fail, as we continue to have have to seek you for forgiveness. We have continue having to repent of our worship failures. Lord, we pray that you would purify us, that you would reform us according to your word, that you would help us to um, give up our homemade substitutes and embrace instead the true worship um, that you have taught us, the Holy Spirit and the scriptures. Help us to do this with humility and reverence. Be gentle and understanding as we live in the uh, church where so many things are so often mixed up and awry. It's not to be self-righteous about this, but Lord, help us to be righteous. We need your help, Lord. So many ways to go astray. We thank you that we can trust you that you will bring us safely through all our imperfections, all of our sin. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.